Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD podcast. Welcome to the NPRD. Today we have Dr. Dan Brenner, who is the founder and medical director of Cambridge Biotherapies. He received his BA from Harvard University and Tufts Medical School further, completed his residency in psychiatry at Cambridge Hospital Harvard Med, where he served as chief resident. He then served as an attending psychiatrist and fellow in the program for psychotherapy. He was a clinical instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School for 10 years and is a graduate of the Boston Psychoanalytics Society and Institute. He is he was board certified in psychiatry and neurology and has been in private practice for over 25 years. And we also have Jordan here, my co-host. Hello. It's great to have you back in the studio, Robin. Thank you. So, Dan, psyched to have you on. We've nice talked. To be here. Thank you. We've talked a bunch of times because I've been able to very thankfully send quite a few folks your way to Cambridge Biotherapies for ketamine. Yeah. And I just, I guess because you've been such, I guess because you've been at the forefront of this for so long, I'm curious as to. You know what what you say to people when they they want ketamine assisted therapy and then to tell us a little bit more about some of the exciting things we talked about at a meeting a couple of weeks ago which is just very cool. Sure. So you, patients come to us clients people come to us for various different reasons. A certain percentage of the people that we see are referred to us because they're really in serious trouble. They've tried a lot of other medications for depression or anxiety, and nothing has worked. They've been in different psychotherapies with limited benefit, and they're at a crisis point. And for those people, we can treat them with interventions like ketamine um, and TMS, and several other uh, kind of approaches that we use here. Uh, and we can do those interventions sort of in a, ve- in a very medical, almost chemotherapy model, where we have someone uh, go through ketamine treatment, but not with the intention of exploring what's happening in their minds um, or uh, you know, working deeply in psychotherapy about what they discover. If it helps that, great. There's another group of people who come to us uh, because uh, they may not be in particular crisis, but they may be struggling having worked, say, in a long-term psychotherapy um, for many years with some benefit, but they feel stuck. People who have trauma histories um, that... uh, are very difficult to work through in the context 
context of a traditional talk therapy. With those people, we use a slightly different approach. We, we uh, for the right person, we do uh, psychotherapy assisted by ketamine. Mm-hmm. And I can um, explain to you a little bit about what what that is exactly and how it works. But when we do that with people, we set out some very clear intentions. We make all of the boundaries very clear. And we really work with people to understand that we're going to do a course of psychotherapy that's time-limited and does not replace their psychotherapy, but is an adjunctive treatment with the intention of allowing somebody to get to things that maybe they've never been able to get to in a long-term psychotherapy. So we use ketamine-assisted psychotherapy you know, with a broad range of people. Even people are very... Uh, seriously in crisis or suicidal, we can use the psychotherapy approach um, as well. But, um, but it's an incredibly powerful intervention for people who are psychologically minded or um, are psychologically minded and know what they need to get to but haven't been able to. For example, uh, with trauma. Trauma is a very challenging problem in the field of psychiatry and and therapy in general because in order to work through trauma, it seems that you need to be able to revisit it and rewire your relationship to the trauma. But when you speak with somebody once a week, let's say, or twice a week, each time you get close to it, it reactivates it. And part of one of the hallmarks of PTSD is this re-experiencing of the trauma. And when you work with it without the proper boundaries and, and parameters and expectations, people can leave sessions. You may think they're okay, but you can throw them into a state of kind of you know, dissociation uh, for the next several days. And over time, you can re-traumatize people that way. Dan, can I go back to one of the words you use? Because I think it's really important. You use the word adjunct. And yeah. one of the things I think it's important for our listeners to hear, because we are, we do speak to the podcast reaches mostly clinicians, although patients listen to it too and their families. And I think it's been important in working with you and Cambridge Biotherapies and the patients we share and when patients ask questions, and I hope I'm correct when I use the word with them, I think I am when I say this is an adjunct, right? So I love how you described it as an adjunct when someone uses the ketamine-assisted therapy approach. It's an adjunct to their actual therapy as well. That's very, very important for people to understand because, um, uh, you know, we, we do have long-term relationships with people, um, you know, who will sometimes do ketamine and intermittent bursts of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. But it's really important that people have stable treatment relationships outside of this context and that we really are seen as an augmentation. You know, when all goes well, what we are trying to do is enhance people's psychotherapy with their primary therapist, not to replace it at all. 
and one of the uh, advantages that we have uh, as consultants, in a way, is that so often clinicians have worked with patients over many years, and I'm guilty of this as well. It's a, you you really get to know somebody, but you never really uh, go back and do a formal um, evaluation that involves asking about all kinds of things that the patient may not have brought up on their own. So when we come in as consultants, we do that kind of an evaluation. And so we may have treatments to offer, but we try to do a really good job with that. And then we serve as consultants, yeah. you know, so we're in a position to say, you know, there's this and this and this, and it sounds like you've tried this, but here are some other ideas. Um, and so there's benefit just to having another set of eyes on, on Without all question. of our patients. Well, especially too, when, when a clinician or a team has been seeing someone for a while and then we have your second set of eyes and ears and all of the tools, it, it can enlighten the whole approach. Yeah. I yeah. think I think the the key in terms of sending folks to you that I've seen in terms of my own client base and certainly other colleagues is we work with eating disorders, which, you know, there's so much concomitant trauma and OCD. Yeah. And that the the progress that folks are able to make in this bigger beautiful team approach is pretty profound it's amazing yeah it's amazing you know one of the things that robin you and i have been talking about before is is, uh, um, is the, the way that ketamine works and why it turns out to be so helpful mm-hmm. in psychotherapy among many other things one of the things that ketamine does is quiet down the anti-reward circuitry in right. your brain. So all of this, this, you know, the networks in your brain that produce all kinds of negative emotions like shame and guilt and fear and the desire to hurt yourself. So, you know, that when we work as therapists, a, a very significant part of the work that we do is building a relationship and trust and helping somebody turn that network off. You know, if you put it in Freud's terms, it would, it's, it's, we're trying to help people relax their superego. Mm-hmm. Because when that anti-reward stuff is firing on all cylinders, you cannot see clearly what you value, uh, who the people in your life are. So uh, ketamine is, a, you know, to... I know it's a little, it may sound a little sensationalistic, but it's a little bit of a magic bullet for that. And it requires very little effort on the patient's part. The ketamine does the work of relaxing, of quieting all of that stuff. And people very often use the word space. They'll say, you know, after a few experiences with ketamine, suddenly I have more space in my mind and I can see more clearly. I can see the way my life has been affected by this idea that I had or that experience. And it becomes less of a battle and it allows people to have a, huh, isn't that interesting approach as opposed to, oh my God, I don't want to think about that approach. Well, and they, they've been looking for that space for so long yeah. and just to be able to have have some of those moments, that space in their brain to, is it correct to say then as well, like have those different 
neural pathways working? Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that's, um, in, you know, very significant when you look at the biology of the way ketamine works is how it affects, in particular, this one network in your brain called the default mode network, which is a network that is on when you are not focusing on anything. It's the, it's the network that we live with mostly on in our lives as you're pacing around and thinking vaguely about what you should have done or should do or what you forgot. That network is on uh, the majority of the time, but when it's on, it is associated with vague anxieties and with depression and dysthymia. So one of the things that you do in meditation is you focus your mind on something, whether it's in your body like your breath or some, a sound. Or, but when you focus, you turn off the default no, mode network. And when you turn that network off, a lot of these vague, dysthymic, dissatisfied experiences dissipate. So that requires effort. You know, there's a reason that people yeah. practice meditation. It takes time. Ketamine is a bit of a cheap route to that. Mm. So when you look at the brains of people who have been treated with ketamine, from a network perspective, what's turned on, what's turned off, their brains look very much like the brains of people who are experienced meditators. And one of the ideas of meditation is you quiet everything down so that you can have insight, so that you can see clearly the nature of your life and the world around you for people who are really depressed or really anxious it's nice to say you know meditate but a lot of people can't do it no it's they can't it's hard and i say that to people i say that from the beginning you know I'm, i am, I am yeah. a clinician that recommends meditation i tried to meditate myself i've found it difficult I've found it difficult to meditate with my hand on my heart. So I say that to people because yeah. I don't want them to think, oh, let's right. just go do this. And I love that example you gave us a couple of weeks ago of the brain, the images of the brain, you know, of humans who have meditated for a while, plus plus the ketamine. Jordan, you have yeah. a question. Yeah, I think. I, I, two things. And this is fascinating. I'm more of a layman here, but uh, I'm wondering, A, if you can address the dangers of those using it as a recreational drug. Uh, any drug can be used recreationally and cause harm. Special K is how it's referred to on the streets. And because of its uh, background as a street drug in some people's minds, has it been that much of an uphill struggle to, to become accepted wide-ranging beyond this podcast and beyond the people like Robin? That was a very, very good question. You know, ketamine has been around for a long time. It was originally developed as an anesthetic. And it's still probably the most, one of the most widely used drugs around the world. It's in every emergency room. It's kind of the go-to anesthetic for children because it's very, very safe. But it's mind-altering. Um, and it's, it, ketamine produces an experience that's not necessarily pleasurable and not necessarily anxiety-provoking, um, but it's an altered state. And as we all know, human beings often are looking for ways to alter their state of mind, and they'll reach for anything. So it is a drug of abuse. What's interesting about it is that it does not produce any physical dependency. It's not, not even like nicotine or alcohol or opioids. 
it probably produces in some people a psychological dependence. But um, there's no way around the fact that it is used by some people in that way. And that has slowed the acceptance of ketamine as a treatment for depression. The way that we use it to treat depression is very different and works for depression for a particular reason. When people abuse ketamine, often they will snort it, let's say. When you snort you know, some ketamine powder, what happens is the blood level goes way up and then it comes down and you go into what people call a K-hole. Well, it turns out that when you give ketamine at a low level, but a steady level for 40 minutes, it has these profound antidepressant and calming effects. So it's, you know, um, the interest in ketamine as an antidepressant did not come from experience of drug, you know, of, of, of the illegal use of it because it doesn't have those effects. Um, but that's a, you know, you ask a very good question because yes, very similar story with psilocybin and LSD as treatments, right? So what I'd love to get to in the, in the last few minutes, actually, if we can, Dan, is more on MDMA. Sure. MDMA is an amazing, uh, step in this field. Here we, we face the same issue of, um, Stigma, stigma here with MDMA. Yeah. It's known on the street as ecstasy. Um, MDMA is a bit of a game changer for the treatment of trauma in particular. It's very different biochemically from psilocybin and from, well, probably closer to psilocybin in some ways, very different from ketamine. The, the main way that MDMA is going to be very helpful is... Um, when it when it's used um, in the process of treatment of trauma that involves revisiting the trauma, so MDMA when you take it um, produces a feeling. It's a serotonergic uh, drug. It boosts serotonin in certain parts of your brain, and you end up feeling extremely warm, um, compassionate, loving, open. It puts you into a very pleasant state of calm acceptance. Turns out that when you put someone in that state and you revisit the trauma, people can rewire their relationship to the trauma in their own mind, in their own brain. So what was before completely terrifying and overwhelming can change internally into something that was really bad, but is understandable in a certain way. And when people revisit it under the influence of MDMA, they develop compassion for themselves. They see themselves obviously as victims of the trauma, but as people young, earlier versions of themselves that are worthy of care and kindness and compassion. And even uh, people in some circumstances come to a kind of forgiveness for the abusers. Um, Not legal forgiveness, not, you know, morally excusing, but when you widen your compassion, it still hurts when somebody punches you 
but it's different when you understand what was driving that person and what kind of abuse that person may have suffered. So it's a, these are very subtle distinctions, and it's very important to not, you know, push anybody in that direction, to push somebody to forgive their abuser, but it's very empowering. So going to be FDA-approved probably in the next year, to use it in this context, you need a specific kind of training because whenever you use a medicine to lower someone's defenses or put them in an altered state, you have to assume a real serious responsibility to take care of that person. And care involves boundaries, clarity, um, a system of approach, understanding about what you're intending to do, how you're going to do it. If things go awry, what is the plan, you know? Um, and so when it's FDA approved, it will, it will most likely be approved as a, to be used only with people who have this specific training. Well, and um, s- similar to the ketamine-assisted therapy, right? Like these are not things that you just sort of go get and they fix it right away, right? Exactly, so this exactly. is a process and an adjunct. And I think one of the things that you said that really makes me feel like this will be helpful for folks with eating disorders because there is such concomitant trauma is then the space to have compassion for the self, which is so, so difficult to achieve. It's very, very difficult for people with eating disorders. And with people with eating disorders, you know, we all, as we all know, control is a huge element and an obstacle for people. Um, And when you help people loosen control, they can start to feel compassion for how they were before, you know. Mm-hmm. They see them, geez, you know, that was me in a very fragile state. I felt I needed to do this. Um, and when you help them chemically release control, they get a taste of what it's like to let go of control. Right. And as as opposed to saying over and over, you know, you were doing your very best at every moment. Is there compassion right. for that self you know, right. that part of you or those parts of you in those places, right. you know, this, right. this can be sort of something that really helps someone along to that. Oh, my God, yeah. And, you know, this is why ketamine can, in many cases, be a very dramatic intervention for eating disorders because there's a disturbance of self-image the, the majority of the time. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes people know what's going on, but they still can't stop. But for many people, there is a very complicated, high-pressure system inside about how they see themselves, how they should be, you know. And when you quiet down all of the anti-reward networks, for lack of a better word, people start to see themselves in a much more, let's use this, i use this word with all the caveats, realistic way, mm. you know. They start to see themselves the way other people are seeing them. Oh my God. You know, like I'm, I am at risk. My health is at risk. I could have a heart attack. Like I weigh 80 pounds. That's not right. You know? Yeah. Um, and it may not last, but once, if you do a series of interventions, they see that in brief moments even. And the more they, people see it, 
the more they kind of get a taste for it. I don't know any other way to put it. Yeah, you're, they're, they're openings, right? They're openings. More and more openings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this has been amazing, Dan. I, every time okay. I talk to you, I feel like we could just talk and talk and talk. And, um, yeah. you know, I think what would be great for the listeners, too, is once we get closer to MDMA being legal in Massachusetts to having yeah. you on again, because sure. that's it, it's just been helpful to me to speak to you in yeah. the learning, have you to our collaborative meetings and in sending patients that that ongoing learning. So what yeah. do you think, Jordan? We will record in the studio for that one again? I believe so. And it would be great if Dan would share his website just before he yes, goes. Yes, please do, Dan. Sure. sure. Glad, yeah. So the website is cbio, just the letter C, bio, B-I-O, dot health. So www.cbio.health. Um, and I would be, you know, I, Robin knows... You get me talking about this stuff. I find it so exciting. I can just talk for hours. But we should also include uh, psilocybin. Yes, yes, we will. Actually, maybe we'll have you on again for a psilocybin sure. chat yeah. before the MDMA. When do you think psilocybin is going to be legal in mass? That's a complicated one because it may, you know, it's legal now, for example, in Oregon. Yeah. But um, as a prescription medication, that's a other, uh, another right. issue because it will also be uh, FDA approved in the context of a formal psychotherapy intervention. And really, it, we're going to start with it as an intervention for people facing end-of-life issues which is really what yeah. the group at Johns Hopkins yes, has been working yes. on. Yes, yes, I've read and heard is about it. Yeah. Daggering. Yeah. And beautiful what yeah. what we've learned, people have learned uh, through that research. It's really quite remarkable. Yeah, I've I've heard and read of it myself and then in further other CEU work it's referenced over and over again. Dan, thank you so much for being on. Jordan, thanks oh, for pleasure. co-hosting and We'll have you back, psilocybin next, I think, and then MDMA. Anytime. All right. Take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kivit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review us, and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out the NPRD.com.